So off we go here. Let me get the pencil out. And we are at June the 25th, 2017, lecture discussion number 288 on the Book of Romans. I saw something that made me laugh. I hate to use it in the summer because it's such a good joke. I should have used it. Uh, I should use it in the winter. Maybe, maybe as long as you all stay quiet, I can get away with it. But I saw this the other day, and I could not help but say I need to steal it. Appropriate it, I guess, would be less. Uh, uh, be more of a euphemistic way to approach it. And it said this, ladies, your long-awaited knight in shining armor just might be some idiot that wrapped himself up in tinfoil. So keep that in mind. And I thought, okay, that's cool, and I'm going to uh, use it a little later on. Beware of the long-awaited knight in shining armor. I have a letter here. Quite the letter, actually. Somebody asked me last week, uh, could I read a letter from the congregation or from the vast internet congregation? And uh, I didn't bring this when I had it, but I didn't bring it. Uh, so I thought I'd bring it today because of it, it fits today. And this is from uh, Sherry, of whom I do not know where she's from. Oh, apparently Illinois. So Sherry in Illinois. And she says a bunch of things, wonderful things. She describes herself as a balsa wood bimbo, which I found fascinating. And said one of her descriptive phrases of herself is that she's crab-appled. So the whole letter is much like that. It's delightful, and um, um, but I can't uh, read all of it. Some of it is personal. But she wanted to say this. She said... She runs into many people who believe this, and this is in today's lecture, so I'm actually addressing this question in a roundabout way. They believe that Jesus, the Old Testament God, and the God who made all the trees are different gods. In other words, they're not the same God. Jesus, the Old Testament God, and the God who was the creator of all things are individuals, separated. Where would they get that opinion? Where would she run into? Why would people have that? That is almost universal now, the teaching of the church. The church separates Christ from God of the Old Testament. And many of them will separate the creating God from the other two. They have a triad, not a triune. And she says, um, the people that wrote the Bible are thought to be, by most that she runs into, a bunch of bigoted, genocidal maniacs. And that is also quite common. No one explains the Old Testament anymore. I shouldn't say no one, but very, very few. It's almost completely gone. And so she writes, perhaps you can revisit this garbage that's resurfacing again in a lecture for those of us who are latecomers. And so that's what I'm kind of going to do today for Sherry's sake. Um, um, Amongst other things that she has, I'll intersperse those as well under the pretext that if someone takes the time to write me these kinds of things, there must be a a wider audience of it. Okay, last Sunday, uh, lecture 287, I went about making a list of the attributes of Satan. See board. There's the attributes of Satan from Isaiah 14, uh, 12 through 15 and Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17. Um, I say 15 on the board, but it's really all the way to 17. And the purpose of those, the purpose of the list was to create the parameters that would restrict the conclusions with respect to the anatomy of the fall of Satan. And what I mean by that, whatever position you've decided upon, whatever timeline you have drawn, whatever reasoning that you have arriven at as to why Satan began to swell with conceit, because that's what he did, He swelled with conceit. It must align with, your position has to align with all of these attributes. He is the shining one. He is uh, sealed. He's marked uh, by God himself with perfection. He's completely filled with wisdom, incomparable wisdom. He's perfect in beauty. He's the king of Eden. He's the anointed cherub. He has been anointed by God himself, and he has been consecrated by God. In other words, he has been set apart. God has established him. He became filled, however, with murderous intent by the abundance of his traffic. 
And that's just to highlight a few from last Sunday. Those last two, actually, uh, number P and Q here. Filled with hate and violence, murder, and by the abundance of his traffic, are, are notable. The whole list, all of that is uh, incredible. But having said that, I personally have long been fascinated by the abundance of his traffic, what that means. But let me, before I get back into that, let me just repeat when you have a position on Satan, it's got to conform with this list. It doesn't have to. I guess not. I can't make you do it. You can have some crazy position. But if you don't want to have a crazy position, I would wish that you didn't, then this is what you must deal with. This is the context. So if you have a position on Satan, you must recognize that he is sealed by God. He's perfect in beauty. He's the anointed, consecrated cherub. So what? how do you go from that to what we have now of Satan? Uh, and, and it's Ezekiel 28, 16. Uh, the abundance of your traffic. By the abundance of your traffic, you became filled with violence within. That's what God says about Satan. This is God himself describing Satan's progression of evil. He says, by this abundance of traffic, you became filled. It's a process. And he gives us the process. Filled with evil. The Hebrew word in question, recall, didn't pronounce it right, but that's reasonably close. That carries the meaning to go from one to another. So Satan went from one to another, and as he did it, he became evil. As Satan went from one angel after another, he became filled with violence, hate, murderous intent, so that causes us to ask some questions, doesn't it? I hope it does. Questions that can go a couple of ways. For example, did Satan become more and more murderous as he convinced the angels of his lie? So that's one aspect or one direction you could go. Did Satan become more and more evil as he got angels to believe him? So the more angels that believed him, the more intense with hatred and evil and wickedness that he got. Or, option two, is murder and killing Satan's response to those angels who didn't believe him, who remained steadfast in their belief of God, even though they may not have understood what they were believing. Notice how I said that. They didn't fall because they believed Satan, but they could not defend God either. That is always a possibility when you're dealing with this particular event. Which was it? Did his confidence grow, Satan's confidence grow, as angel after angel fell into his lie? Or did the fact that two-thirds of the angelic realm refused him, did that cause him, did that cause his rage? Did that result in his rage? And you decide that. How? By the list. Something on the board will tell you which one of those are true. Or your position has to conform Two, full of wisdom, seal of perfection, perfect in beauty, anointed cherub, pride, ego, conceit, filled with violence by the abundance of your traffic, beauty, wisdom, all of that, your wisdom corrupted. So that's your, you get to do that while I go on here a second. Some of you may have noticed the similarity to this event in scripture. Satan's progression is similar to somebody else's progression. Do you have any idea? I'll give you a clue. It's in Genesis 4. We had a progression to murder there as well, didn't we? We have a progression of murder here, but we also have the same kind of anatomy, these little steps that occur in Cain and Abel. Cain just didn't wake up one day and kill Abel. That could have happened over a period of years. That's another question. How long did it take Satan to go to angel to angel to angel to angel until he finally got a third of them to believe him? How much, where is the timeline here? How much rage occurs? When did he reach the position he's in now? But let's just go back to Cain killing Abel. What was the motive of Cain killing Abel? Let me ask you another question. Of the two, Cain or Abel, who do you suppose was the most pious one? Who do you suppose was the church pastor of the two? You ever notice these forensic files? Do you ever watch forensic files? 
You can watch Forensic Files. Is, uh, uh, I'm giving away some of my uh, character flaws. But when Lori's on vacation, I will watch Forensic Files. And as you get to the end of one, the next one starts automatically. You can't. There's no commercial. You've got to go to the next one. It's very clever, these people. And they fool me. No, they don't. I intentionally allow myself to be manipulated. But if a pastor ever shows up in one of those things, he's always guilty. Every single time, he's the murdering scoundrel. It's fantastic. There apparently is a, a bunch of pastors who murder their congregation. Be warned about that. But that seems to be a common occurrence if you follow the percentages on forensic files. But as soon as the pastor shows up, I go, he did it. I mean, I have no sympathy for them at all. So who do you think was the perfect, wise, beautiful one, Cain or Abel? Who was the one that was full of wisdom, the seal of perfection, the pious one? Look at the conversation God has with Cain and ask yourself, did he have a similar conversation with Satan? Were they both? Cain is the first one, right? Who did Eve think was going to be the son of the woman or the seed of the woman? Cain or Abel? So again, which one, Cain or Abel, brought before God a bloodless or Christless? Because if it has no blood, it has no Christ offering. Which one brought the bloodless offering? Was it Abel or was it Cain? Who of Cain and Abel thought that he didn't need the blood of Christ in his offering? If you don't think you need the blood of Christ, what is your opinion of yourself? Are you here? Is the motive for killing Abel the motive for going angel by angel and killing angels? Ultimately, uh, by definition of killing, you have to define it. So compare that to Satan, Cain, and Abel. We will do that in the weeks to come. But uh, for now, I have to keep moving. As you know, when you're dealing with this, there's more information than that is in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 tells us more things about Satan. Satan is told by God in the presence of every single angel that it was there. They were all there. They were all listening. And Adam and Eve, he gives him more things. He says, because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle, above every beast. Upon thy belly you shall go dust, eat dust, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the serpent will be killed. So those are other little things that we should cram into our list. So I will just put them over here in the corner. Because you have done this, you are cursed. When God says cursed, what does he mean? The definition of cursed, above the cattle, all cattle, above all the beasts, every beast. Um, on your belly you're going to go. You're going to eat dust forever. Eternal eating of dust and then you're going to have a seed, however, and your seed will be killed. So there's more information. And perhaps you've remembered, and I asked, I've asked, uh, where on your timeline, because here's your timeline from last week. Whoops, I get to go back to zero on those phrases that I cannot utter. utter. I almost said that I get to go back to even or zero on by the ways. Where on your timeline did you put the creation of the lake of fire, Matthew 25, 41? At some point, and, and obviously I'm suggesting that the lake of fire is created here at Genesis 3, 14 and 15. So I would put the lake of fire on my list right here because that's my position I think it's defendable. It makes sense to me because he says you are cursed. And cursed to me, when God says you're cursed, that has a lake of fire implication. So that's one of the ways I get there. But anyway, consider the impact of the revealing of the lake of fire to Satan and the fallen angels. If it is in fact given here when he does the sentencing of Satan and he creates it, consider the impact of its revealing. 
What did they think when they saw it? What were they thinking when they saw it? Up to this point, what were the consequences of the rebellion? Until the lake of fire is created, until there's a sentencing of Satan, until there's the announcement of curse, until the cattle and the beast and the belly and the dust and the seed and the seed killed, what were the consequences of the rebellion of the angelic host? I'm going to say nothing. They, none. They experienced, they saw nothing. No action traceable to the, to their insurgency. They were allowed to run rampant. And they assumed that God was not moving against them. I believe. And what would they infer from what they might or probably perceive as God's failure to oppose them? What would they think? You can put that in humanistic terms. Use your own children. You have a child that uh, gets into the, pick something, paint, spreads it all over your house, and you do nothing. Plugs up your toilets, floods your house, you do nothing. What's going to happen? How's that child going to respond? Let's raise the child to a 15-year-old that steals money out of your purse or your safe or your wallet, and you do nothing. What happens? Does he get better or does he get worse? I have an angelic host that is that is in chaos. It has run amok, and it appears to them, I believe, that God is not opposing them. And would it not seem logical that they would assume that Satan's lie was in fact validated. In other words, they would not see it as a lie. When Satan, when it said Satan's lie, remember, that is after the fact. At the time it was given, was it determined to be a lie? How many people recognized that this was a lie? How many angels did? Did Eve recognize it as a lie? Obviously not. She said she was deceived. Then she recognized it as a lie after her fall. Would it not seem logical that Satan's proposal, if you wish to think of it that way, was validated. Everyone believed him. God is doing nothing. What's the reason that God is doing nothing? He either cannot do anything against it or he will not do anything against it. Either way, we're in a situation where God cannot respond. Did, did Satan think this ever? What your position has to be is this one you have to deal with full of wisdom. Did Satan ever think, did Satan ever believe his own lie? Did he ever believe that God was not, was not responding? Yes, go ahead. Well, he, he, he listen, he, there's your timeline. Here's a, uh, uh, the person that may or may not be supper day for you on the internet has suggested that, uh, uh, has uh, said that this was always intended as an as an as something that would attack people, but now you're on your timeline. You have to have you have to have established when was Satan created? Is he the first one created? Who's the second one? Who's the third one? Who's the uh, the millionth angel created? What was his name? The five millionth created angel. What was his name? Where was Steve? Angel Steve. Way down the way, way, way down there. He's going to end up being the sheet rocker. <laughs> Point is, is that if Satan is here, where's Michael? Where's Adam? The abundance of your traffic is not um, human angel or Satan to human. It is Satan to angel, and so. Until humanity was created, there was no anticipation. Could he have figured out that humanity was coming? Could he have figured out that uh, that there was another creative event that was going to be physical or organic? He's full of wisdom. Could he anticipate it? Or was he surprised by it? <coughs> anyway. Do you suppose that the fallen angels, we have the silence of God... Because everybody complains, even us. We always complain. When I say everybody, I mean us. We complain that God is not doing what we want. 
Why doesn't God listen to me and do what I want? Why doesn't God listen to you and do what you want? Because it would destroy you if he did, that's why. He's not going to do what you want upon your demand that he does, because that will hurt you. It is sin for him to do that. He has no sin. It's also destructive to you. It gives you a false understanding, a false self-assessment. The greatest thing that you can achieve as a human being is a proper self-assessment after your salvation. If you have the proper self-assessment, then you're, you are a humble person. Humble people get saved. Arrogant people, they have a different destiny primarily. But God did not move. And what did the fallen angels say when God did not move? Do you think they were silent? Do you think the fallen angels were sitting there and there's no response from God? Is all this silence, all this waiting, and they say nothing? Or what did they do to the unfallen angels? What did they say? How much time passed here? Time passes. How much time has passed? And having that on your timeline becomes very important. What did the fallen angel say to the unfallen angels when God appeared or seemed to do nothing? Remember this war in Revelation 12. Finally, when the fallen angels and Satan are driven out of the heavens, what do the unfallen angels do? They cheer. They celebrate. We finally got rid of these people. Not people, these angels. We finally got rid of them. They're thrilled. And then they go, oh, too bad for the earth. We've got them out of heaven. Finally. How much tension is going on? It took a war to do it. How much warring is going on up there? What, how long a state of war do we have in the angelic realm? Now, the next question. How long did God wait and why does God wait? Should be able to handle both of those. He waits because he's merciful. He doesn't wait because he can't think of what to do. Oh, I've got to have some time to think this through. I'm omniscient, omnipotent God. Make sure whatever position you have, and I should go, I'll go ahead and burn a by the way. By the way. The predominant position is, is that God couldn't figure out what to do. Had to think about it. Just go and listen to these, these lectures, these sermons from the pulpit. Especially about Christ. It's, it's just craziness. I don't know what to do. Why does God wait? Because he's merciful. Not that he needs the time to figure something out. How did each faction of angels view the creation of the organic Eden and the physical earth? When the, I asked this last week. When the fallen angels and the unfallen angels see God... Create the organic, physical earth. Job 38, 7. What did they think? One group, of course, we know for sure. I asked this last week. Did both groups cheer? Or did only one group cheer? What did they think? Did one group think it was a threat and the other think it was a solution? Who thought what? So consider that while I go, just for fun, and this will be my definition of fun. Let's take a kind of quick, sort of rabbit trail. I'm not really, it's not really a genuine rabbit trail. I just wanted to resurrect my celebrated rabbit trail icon. Emoji, I guess, is what it is now. Why isn't that catching on? Probably because Everready owns the patent. But there's no real, no one, when I did that, I did that for many years, many years. How many years have I done my celebrated rabbit trail icon? Most of the time I just do the head. This is what I would do. And everyone wondered what that was. And I admit I have no idea what it is either. Uh, but uh, for many years I've done it, over 20 years, and no one had any idea what it was or why I kept putting it on the board. <sighs> Where am I? I'm on a rabbit trail here. 
cursed above all cattle. Quite the mystery. What does it mean? I've said previously, and I'm trying to get you to think about it as much as I can without interfering with your processes, but I've said previously, this forces us to Psalm 22.12. 22.12, Psalm 22.12, many bulls have encompassed me, the bulls, the cattle of Bashan. So many, much cattle has encompassed me, Psalm 22.12. The me in that verse is not is not Jesus Christ. He does not say, the bulls of Bashan have encompassed me. He would never say that because why? In circle, let me put it this way. The cattle of Bashan have encircled the infinite God. It's illogical. He would never say that. How many bulls of Bashan can fit on the head of a pin? Let's put it this way. How big is the hand of Christ? How many bulls of Bashan would it take to encircle, to encompass the hand of Christ? Just the hand. Christ did not say that. Christ, Rule number one, Christ is God. He's always God. He's never not infinite, omnipotent God. And if it's not Christ, then the me in that verse, you really only have one other choice. It has to be, it must be, the nation of Israel. So when it says in Psalm 22:12, many bulls have encompassed me, the bulls, the cattle of Bashan, that is the nation of Israel saying that. Now, I know that Israel is a type of Christ and it can get confusing. Israel goes into the wilderness, Christ goes into the wilderness, Israel is the firstborn. Uh, Christ, of course, is called the firstborn, the firstfruits. But recognize and it, uh, that it cannot be Christ here, it has to be Israel even though there can be some element there of typology. What is important is that the bulls are cattle. And, and he says to Satan, God says, you are cursed more than cattle. And cattle play a pivotal role during the campaign of Armageddon. This is the Armageddon reference. Israel is crying out about the bulls of Bashan, during the campaign of Armageddon. Psalm 22 is a prophecy that depicts Israel as they cry out to Jesus Christ to save them as they're about to be exterminated. They cannot be exterminated because Christ will save them. But it's something that they say to him. They begin to recognize, they turn to him whom they have crucified, even though Christ is in control of his crucifixion. Anyway, Psalm 22 has cattle bulls. It also has a raging and roaring lion. It has dogs and it has a horned animal that encircle or that attack Israel. And we'll leave that those others be for today. We'll leave the roaring, raging lion, the dogs, and the horned animal. Well, you can think about it. Who's the raging, roaring, roaring lion? Who's the horned beast? Who are the dogs that come for Israel? But we're going to focus on cattle today. Maybe next week. Oh, it won't be next week. Maybe the week after that. Might not be the week after that. Uh, but it, but for today, cattle, bulls, male cattle. That's what a bull is. Do I need to explain this in any more detail? No. Good. Male cattle. We've got to consider them. When we consider them, the prominent scriptures to read are Psalm 22, Exodus 32, and Luke 15. If you want to find out about cattle, that's where you go. Now I will flip the holy, magnificent, amazing platinum model Dry erase board. Listen, how long has the platinum model dry erase board been operable? It's been years, hasn't it now? Six, seven years we've gone with this thing. Perhaps I should uh, consider advertising for these guys. Maybe they'll come through for me. I'm a little bit embittered by Coca-Cola's failure to response, but I'm, I am... Uh, calmed down by the steroid effect, so it's working.
Psalm 22, Exodus 32, Luke 15. You want to learn about cattle? I took my tie off for those of you on the Internet because it's unbearably hot here today. It might be 72 degrees outside. We just can't deal with it. Tell that to the people in Phoenix. Who in their right mind would live in Phoenix? One electromagnetic pulse, no air conditioning in Phoenix. That's going to be a mess. Let's read Exodus 32. Don't talk about cattle. Exodus 32. We'll just do a little bit of it. We'll do a little bit of Luke 15. That'll have to suffice for today. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us, for as far as this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Moses has got a, he's taken a 40-day, 40-night class. What did he learn in that class? And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool. So Aaron's a pretty impressive guy. Melts it down, and he fashions it. And made a molded calf. So we have a calf. What's a calf? Is it a bird? This will be a rabbit. No, it's cattle. Now, let's go to... Oh, I should add verse 5. So when Aaron saw, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. I'll keep going. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Okay, so now we'll go to Luke 15. You should be very familiar with this. And we'll start at verse 22. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. This this is the parable of the two sons. I do not believe it is proper to call this the prodigal son. I think it is necessary that you call it the two sons. Because it is about two sons. We make it about one son all the time. Why? Because we don't have any understanding. That's why. It's about two sons. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf. Uh Uh-oh. Calf, calf. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this is my son. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near the house. He heard music and dancing, and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. So I have a fatted calf, and what do I have up here? I have a golden calf. My pen isn't working so good, is it? We'll just tough it out. Get through today. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandments. That's a lie, as you know. At any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Now, Luke 15 is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Father here. 
the nation of Israel, who is Pharisee-controlled, and Christ is telling this story to the nation of Israel that is Pharisee-controlled. He is giving this parable to the Pharisees, and they are not stupid in the sense that they know they're in the story. And they know that the nation of Israel is represented by the Pharisees. That is the elder son. They know that. They are the elder son. And he tells them that they're lying. We've never transgressed any of your commandments. We always did what you said. We are always serving you. And again, Christ is obviously portrayed by the Father. See Isaiah 9, 6. And of course, the younger son is the Gentile nations. Or if you want to think of it this way, this is the wife of YHVH and the bride of Christ. The wife and the bride, or the church. And the Pharisees hated the Gentiles, wished that every Gentile would perish, and they hated Christ, sought to kill him, not ever knowing that he is, in fact, Almighty God. They hated the Gentiles so much, they did nothing to try to save them. says, let them die. And the inferred climax of this parable is that the elder son assembles those servants loyal to him, and he mounts them up in a force and comes to kill everyone at the party, especially the father and the younger son. If you go into the Middle East and ask them about this story, that's exactly what they will tell you. The level of disrespect for the father from the eldest son is so dramatic, the only conclusion can be that he has come to kill the father. The Pharisees, of course, fit that profile. They don't know the Father Christ, Isaiah 9, 6, is omnipotent God. Oops. And somewhere on the Internet is all of those lectures on Luke 15. I have no idea where they are. Right to Supper Dave, if, in fact, he is a real person. Anyway, the questions that immediately fly up and smack us Upside the head is why a golden calf? And does the golden calf connect in any way to the fatted calf? I think it's obvious it does. I don't think that it's any possibility it doesn't. And then ask this, does this take us to Psalm 22.12, the bulls of Bashan? And then ultimately, does this get us to Genesis 3, 14 through 15, the sentencing or the cursing of Satan? Now, everyone should know, I think everyone does know here, Exodus 32 is one of the prominent dramatic theodicies in all of the Old Testament. That's what it is. It's equal to Genesis 18, 16 through 33. So what is happening here with the golden calf and what happens with Abraham and Lot and Sodom have a tremendous relationship. Both of those are pictures of the internal uh, process of the triune God, said in a way that is humanistic. God uses these events to teach about something. And this feeds back into Sherry's question. Most people see what's happening here in Exodus 32 or what's happening in Genesis 18 as God being capricious, arbitrary, Violent, uh, murderous, how did she put it exactly? Genocidal. Let me get it right. Uh, Bigoted, genocidal, maniacal, maniacal. Sorry. Don't write me. I got a wonderful letter from somebody that wrote back to tell me that uh, they had misused the possessive pronoun they meant your, Y-O-U-R, or they meant Y-O-U apostrophe R-E instead gave the possessive. They were so worried about it that they wrote back to correct it, which I found delightful because uh, that is an indication of, of uh, what's the word I want. I would do the same thing. I would, I would worry about being that way, and I would do exactly the same thing. I was a school teacher for years, many years, as you know. I never graded off for spelling or grammar, ever. Why? Ever. I only focused on reasoning and content. You could misspell every single word. If I could read it, I was happy. 
You've seen those little things where they leave letters out and you can still read it? That's the way I approach things. If I could read it at all. All I cared about is did you have a thoughtful process or were you just simply regurgitating nonsense? I didn't care about the spelling. Why would I do that? Because I was not going to be a hypocrite. I, I think that particular person wrote me from uh, Arizona, where it's 122 degrees. No wonder they don't. No, they can't. I mean, your mind has to bake. And I can't believe anyone lives there. Where am I? Let me back up. These are dramatic theodicies. And they are revealing the inner processes of God. And both of these passages are solved by understanding. So Genesis 19, or 18 and Exodus 32 are solved by understanding Genesis 15 and Matthew 26, 36 through 42. That is the burning furnace or the smoking furnace and the burning lamp. And that is the cup at which Christ says, let this cup pass. There also we are being demonstrated or being de- what's being demonstrated to us is God's holiness and justice alongside his long-suffering, his patience, and his mercy. It is why he waits. The smoking furnace of judgment for sin and the burning lamp of love and mercy going through the, the, uh, the animals that have been cut in half, except the birds have not been cut in half. Anyway, at... Exodus 32, Aaron, during the absence of Moses, constructs a golden young bull out of gold. Let me repeat that. A golden young bull out of gold. I'm repeating gold twice so that you'll know gold is there. It's a male. We know it's a male because it's a bull. How do we know it's a bull? We have discovered this from archaeological investigation, has found replicas that have been discovered. They're not made out of gold, but they are Male bulls. That's a redundancy. I'm doing it on purpose. Don't write me. Key question then. Why cattle? Why a young male calf? Let me put it on the board. It's gold. Oh, my goodness. I'm not going to make it through the lecture. Uh, Let's see what I can find in the package of cool stuff. Okay, what do we know? It's gold. It's young. How do I know it's young? It's a calf. It's male. (coughs) Why is it a gold, young, male calf? Well, we know from Matthew 2 that thousands and thousands of wise men showed up. They came from the Babylonian court of Daniel. And they came because they knew something that no one else in the world knew. That's a pretty cool thing for them. And we learned in Matthew 2 that they brought three gifts to Christ they made this pilgrimage because they saw the Shekinah glory. And they knew that it was the Shekinah glory. They understood what was occurring when they saw the Shekinah glory. They had been prepared to look for the Shekinah glory. That's why they're called astronomers. Look in the sky for the Shekinah glory. That's something that Daniel taught them because Daniel saved all of their forefathers from being executed by Nebuchadnezzar. These are the sons of those men that were saved. They are the court of Daniel. The wise men of Daniel. And there's thousands of them. And they knew that the light that they saw, the Shekinah glory, would lead them to uh, what they were to go to. They knew that this was the primable light. They knew that this is... This is the light of Genesis 1. This is the light of life of John 8. 
They knew what it was. There was no discussion. There was no controversy. Not a single one of them said, what's that light in there in the sky? They all knew. They had been waiting for it their whole lives. They knew why it was coming, and they, they were taught uh, by Daniel himself uh, through the, uh, their forefathers. They never, never thought it was a star. Never. Not one of them. They wrote no songs that had star in it. I always wanted to write a song, something that would rhyme with primable. They never thought it was a star. Only idiots wrapped in tinfoil think that that was a star. But I rant. The wise men who brought, who came, brought three items, didn't they? They brought three. They didn't bring two. They didn't bring four. They brought three. Why did they bring three? Because they're wise. What did they bring first? What's the first thing they brought? Gold. They brought gold to the Shekinah glory. They knew that whenever you see the Shekinah glory, you bring gold. And then what do you bring? You bring frank incense. Uh... And you bring myrrh. That's what you bring. One, two, three. Because you're from the court of Daniel and you know to bring that. And gold, as you are aware, carries the meaning of deity. So I have a gold young male calf. Why isn't it a silver or a lead or a wooden or a stone? It's not. It's a gold calf. Not an accident. Gold means this is God. It is the meaning of deity. The Ark of the Covenant is wood and it is completely encapsulated with gold. That is the humanity of Christ covered by his Godhood. The boards of the tabernacle of Moses were likewise overlaid with gold, as was the golden altar, the table of shewbread. None of the wood of the tabernacle, which represents the humanity of Christ, none of the wood of the tabernacle is visible. All you see is the gold. There's your doctrinal lesson again of the day. The doctrinal lesson of the tabernacle is what that is. What you learn from the gold completely overlaying, no visible wood. To recognize and glean from that, the tabernacle of Moses is the prominent symbol of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. It includes the Ark of the Covenant. That's why I'll say that. Its entirety, its whole purpose is to teach Israel of Jesus Christ and by extension the rest of the nations, that's us. It's to teach Israel the elder son who refused to teach the truth of the tabernacle to the younger son for which Israel was dispersed. But the purpose of all of this, the gold, the divine through Christ is in authority over his humanity. You can't see the wood. Thank you. The magic hand showed up to tell me I better be on page 11, and I am. You can't see the wood. Sorry. Not really. Fake sorry. You want a crying, weeping, pathetic human God? You're not going to get one from the Bible. You've got one. Throw it out. It's junk. It's blasphemy. Can't be defended. Good luck standing there telling Christ that you thought he was pathetic. You're doomed. Not getting away with that. Makes me mad, can you tell? Christ hid his divine nature. He did it. He hid it. The gold, the divine, the divine. What did I say? Defined? The divine was hidden somewhat. But he did reveal it all over the place, over and over and over. He told us who he really is. He especially did it during his crucifixion, which makes the stories of the crucifixion unwatchable, unlistenable to me. It makes me physically ill. I actually just get so frustrated that I feel like I can't watch this stuff anymore. I'm too old to deal with it. I've lost my patience. I can't do it anymore. 
And I hear it way too often. He did reveal who he was, especially during his crucifixion. His glory, the gold, was put on display at his crucifixion. But unfortunately, the church of this current time is unaware of that and is, or is intentionally blind, Revelation 3.16. And I think, of course, that it is a combination of both. But not, not so the wise men. They brought gold. They knew this was the Lord God Almighty. They also gave frankincense and myrrh because they understood as well the plan of salvation. They knew that there was a sweet savor of sacrifice, the substitutionary death, the covering of blood. Myrrh, of course, is an embalming fluid. Frankincense is the incense of the accepted substitute. But for today, just know that gold is a symbol of deity, and we see Aaron forming a golden male young calf. And he knew what he was doing. And they knew what he was doing. There can be no question, Aaron was declaring the young bull to be God. And the people immediately worshipped and sacrificed to it. Let me go to uh, Exodus 32.8, in case I didn't read it. They, they which have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them, they have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed it. That's God speaking to Moses. They immediately, the people, after Aaron made this golden calf for them, they immediately worshipped and sacrificed to the golden calf. What's the obvious question? Now, remember, using Sherry's um, from Illinois' question, why do so many people think that God is a genocidal, homicidal maniac? And they do it right here in Exodus 32. God says they have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed it. Huh. Let me go on. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. That's God speaking. Is he a genocidal, homicidal, capricious maniac, or is he a God of goodness, love, mercy, justice? Let me, let me read 19 and 20 of verse, of verse 32, or chapter 32. So it was, as soon as he came near, this is Moses, near the camp, and he saw the calf and the dancing. Oh, wait a minute. Don't I have dancing with the fatted calf? I do. Moses saw the calf and the dancing. Moses says anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hand, broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in fire, ground it to powder. How big a calf was it? And he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. How'd that go? And Moses said to, the, said to Aaron, Why, what did this people do to you that, that you have brought them so great a sin? It's a great sin. Obvious question. God says they immediately, quickly made this calf, worshipped it, and sacrificed to it. What's the question? Who was sacrificed to this calf? That's the question. Did you think it was grains and oat and maybe a rabbit? It wasn't. Who? What makes God angry? I said a long time ago, we had a former president, and I'll say it again now because I have time. We had a former president that said, God bless Planned Parenthood. I suggest that he read... Exodus 32. Who is usually killed in worship to these types of idols? Who is usually sacrificed to golden calves? How does God respond? How did Moses respond? Is God evil here or good? And Moses began killing the dancers. He said it's so great a sin. He's killing the dancers. The last thing you need to do, you would ever want to be, is a dancer during a child sacrifice ceremony. 
How many were killed in the worshiping of the golden calf? How many? Well, I'm saying how many were sacrificed? How many sacrifices were there? Hundreds? Thousands? How many were killed to this golden calf? And then Bill's saying, how many did Moses end up getting rid of here? Moses ends the sacrificial killing. Again, what was the ages of those who were murdered by the dancers? You decide. It was a great sin, Exodus 32:30. Moses says, you know, then goes to God and offers himself as atonement. Blot me out of your book, he prays. Don't, don't destroy this nation of child killers. Blot me out instead. That's what Moses did as an incredible uh, portrait of Christ. To repeat, Moses is portraying Jesus Christ here, a literal true event with the extraordinary truths of Christ within, a dramatic theodicy. The golden calf is the absolute opposite of Jesus Christ. The absolute opposite of Jesus Christ is the golden calf. So what do you think the fatted calf is? The golden calf is declared to be God, to have deity, but it is an evil, wicked event. It's a wicked, evil icon, if you will. Next lecture, we're going to further investigate the role of Aaron in this, as you may surprise, as may surmise. There's quite a bit of disagreement here. Some people frame Moses, I'm sorry, Aaron, as a uh, uh, detached observer trying to stop them from doing this. We'll decide if that's got any validity. The best way to determine the meaning of the golden calf, the best way to answer why a young male gold calf, the best way to answer cursed above all the cattle, the best way to do that is to compare the fatted calf at Luke 15. In other words, the New Testament complement to Exodus 32 is Luke 15. The golden calf, you should study it alongside the fatted calf. Now, it's, it's been long thought that the fatted calf represents Jesus Christ. That's not new. Jesus is telling the parable to the Pharisees. They know that they're the elder son. They did not know that Christ placed himself in two places, though. They knew that, in, they knew, in my opinion, that he was, he placed himself as the father. They did not know that he was also the fatted calf. And the verse, if you read it carefully, you read the Old King James especially, it's famously called, bring hither the fatted calf, calf and kill it. That is exactly what is said in Leviticus 16, 3, 16.6, 16.11, 16.14, 16.15, 16.27. That is a Leviticus phrase, bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. It is a sin offering in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. The Pharisees would know that. They would be, they would be very well versed in the young male fatted calf. And what it's for. It's for atonement. Again, notice Moses at 32.30 of Exodus. Atonement. Blot me out. Let me make atonement. The young bull, the fatted calf, is central to the day of atonement. And no one at Luke 15 listening to this parable would have missed the fatted calf atonement connection. Christ calls himself to be killed. He's the fatted calf. Moses called himself to be killed, which only makes sense. He's the fatted, fatted calf, and he calls himself to be killed, right? Because only omnipotent God can kill omnipotent God. He must give himself up, John 10:18. No one can take his life from him, John 10:18. Duh. The fatted calf is the very best that can be given to God. So obviously, Jesus himself is the fatted calf. In the weeks to come, we'll continue to investigate this. When we stand before Jesus Christ, we will see the best and only provision for our atonement. Do understand that. He has to be God for, this, for him to be the fatted calf. Do you understand that? If you go there saying, some other Christ, it will not go well. I've said this many times. You know that I was influenced greatly by Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum. He used to say, there is no salvation apart from sound doctrine of Christ. I know what he meant by that. I also know that it's a very strong statement that has to deal with the thief on the cross, but I also know the thief of the cross called him the rememberer of all things.
the restoration of the younger son. His garment, his ring, his sandals are the result of the love and mercy of Christ, God himself, and the slaying of the fatted calf. You will notice music and dancing, the celebration of resurrection. The younger son was dead and is now alive again. That's resurrection, Luke 15:32, And he is resurrected because of the killing of the fatted calf. Bring the fatted calf hither. Take me, Genesis 15. Bring me. If Christ is the seed of the woman and the fatted calf, then who is the golden calf? And that's where we'll stop for today.